Welcome to the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s. We are now pushing 80. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the war on poverty. the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. We have a lot to say before we leave the planet. In this episode, we talk about post-election politics. Our guests are Marxist-Leninist writer Greg Godels and former Fox News anchor and investigative reporter Larry Sperano. Cindy, how are you and where are you calling from? Calling from the Toscana. Uh, and we've been doing a lot of olive picking. Mason, how about you? Where, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm in uh, Maine where we're trying to eke out the last days of being able to persuade friends to eat dinner with us uh, outside. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's dressed up in their parkers and long underwear. Uh, yeah. And Fred, how about you? How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm calling from Prior Lake, Minnesota. Uh, I guess a third ring suburb south and a little west of Minneapolis, downtown Minneapolis. Uh, it's only snowed twice here so far. Um, but it's in the 40s today and the weatherman says the snow will melt. Um, before the next snow. <laughs> here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, we have a Risk day. There's going to be a night football game, and uh, against the Badgers, who will probably beat Michigan. Jerry, how about you? I'm in Pasadena, California, outside of Los Angeles, and it's uh, freezing outside. It's 60 degrees, so we're <laughs> <laughs> wearing our overcoats. All right. And Larry, how about you? Where are you calling from? Well, I'm calling from 12 miles north of Scranton, of um, Joe Biden's boyhood home in Scranton, soon to be made a national shrine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Greg, how about you? Where are you calling from? Which is I'm calling from Pittsburgh. Um, I'm uh, also in uh, the state that won the election for Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. In fact, the county that many say won the election for Joe Biden. Good to see all of you again. Good to see you again. So tell me, how, what's your, let's start with you. What's your perspective on where we're at now? I don't see much different than 2016. And I know a lot of people on the left are saying uh, uh, Trump was the worst president ever in the history of the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. In my view, Trump is the culmination of that long process. Uh, I'm not optimistic about the future with Biden. I voted for him. Uh, if that allows me in the door here. But uh I don't see much, uh, much going on, and I see him part of that same debacle. Um, if I were to give a parallel or send someone somewhere to compare what's going on here with somewhere else, I would ask people to look at Italy, where our friend uh, Allison is, because the uh, Berlusconi uh, situation was very much like Trumpism was. It came after the crack up of their, their two-party system at that time. And um, if you look at it, it really, uh, when, it, when it finished, when Berlusconi was done, it actually got worse. I find Greg's analysis very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm of the opinion that uh, 
as Greg, I think was saying, there's not that going to be that much difference in terms of uh, being captured by special interests and um, the big corporations and international corporations between Biden and uh, Trump. Uh, you know, case in point is the way uh, big tech and the social media and the networks and newspapers were all on board with uh, promoting Biden and not really acting as a watchdog for the public, not, not really uh, pressing them on anything. Whereas on Trump, it was a full court press all the time. So whether you supported Trump or not, I think all of us who are or have been journalists should be very alarmed. This concerns me, I think, more than anything else about the shutdown of uh, news and information, the, the increasing control of media. Where do you go for real information if the if, if the press is not is um, no longer objective, that are all on board with being uh, promoters and propagandists rather than journalists. To me, that's the greatest danger we're facing. I think the journalists did their job, Larry. I think they did their right. job. No, the, the point I'm making is this. I have no objections to going after Trump's taxes and investigating other things that bear investigation. <clears throat> glaring here, the glaring absence here is that they didn't subject Biden to the same standard. So you've got the, the press, the media all on board with one party, one administration. That is very dangerous. The, the Hunter laptop story. Now, to me, there was, there was substance there. He wasn't even asked about that. If you weren't watching Fox News, which I'm not endorsing because they have their own axe to grind, but if you weren't watching Fox News or reading the New York Post newspaper, you wouldn't even know that story existed. Now, what what real journalists, if they had the opportunity, would not ask Mr. Vice President, is that your son's laptop? Are those emails authentic? And does it indicate that you were meeting through your son's auspices with, with foreign leaders for business deals, which would enrich you and your family? Those are questions that should have been asked. He could have denied it. He could have struck it down. He could have disproved it. But not even to ask a, a presidential candidate, to me, that's a huge danger to the republic. Also, going with it is permitting these, these technical companies to then become the censors of public discourse. Right. That's another very dangerous uh, tendency trend while well, it's even happening. So they're deciding what even can reach people's eyes. Well, right now they'll say it's, it's to protect people against, you know, they have all sorts of, from sophisticated to simplistic excuses, but it's censorship and it's putting censorship in the hands of um, these uh, corporate leaders who might, who at this point happen to be on the side that maybe some, uh, you know, liberals or Democrats or something, they support the view. So they ignore the censorship or even encourage it. Well, the, the, that shoe will go on the other foot at some point and then they'll be crying. So it's unprincipled and it's a big threat. How do I'm you feel, open, And let anyone say, I'd rather have anyone say anything because at least then it can be, it can be rebutted and refuted yeah, Kent and I have had this conversation another, another, a number of times, and I've said, put it out there, let it be ridiculed, let it be analyzed, let it be editorialized, but at least allow that information to get out. Now, cutting off the president of the United States, even though it's Trump, cutting them off uh, in, in mid-sentence, which they did on uh, NBC with uh, Brian Williams and also um, uh, Shepard Smith. 
they they cut him off as he was talking about the election being stolen, saying, since this is all lies, we are not going to be part of allowing this to be propagated. Let us decide. Well, he was, At least get the he information was telling out. lies, Larry. He was telling lies. They have a right to tell lies. Huh? We have a right to, they have a right to tell lies. No other lying president like Ronald Reagan was ever pressed the way that the Trump was pressed. I, I have to agree with Larry. Uh, it's not only a, the fact if you if you were not part of the two-party scheme, as I'm not, and you looked at this, it's shocking because it reminds you of when the left was was shattered in the 50s by McCarthyism. To see these values that liberals hold so dear just violated in this last two years is, is shocking to me. The charges uh, put forward with no basis, no response, and those on the left who also saw it as I saw it, uh, Matt Taibbi and uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, uh, Thomas Frank, all saw this going on and saying, we're the liberals. Where the, where's the defense of freedom of the press? Where's the defense of freedom of speech? Where's the defense of fair play? And in the case of Biden, I mean, talk about a free pass. The kid was getting $50,000 a month. He had <laughs> yeah. just finished. He had just got tossed from the Naval Reserves. They had a expedited program for him and 11 other people. Those 11 people were put in, didn't have to go to basic training. And he got, he got washed out because of drug abuse. And immediately he's got a job. And immediately he's got a job in Ukraine, which happened to be his dad's territory. And he's making 50,000 a month. It's unexplainable. Yeah, yeah, the First Amendment was put was in place to ensure freedom of the press and speech, even if it's something you do not like. Is to protect all speech. Thomas Jefferson hated the newspapers of the day because they were after him. They were charging him unfairly. They, they were partisan. But he said, in the balance, you allow enough newspapers, enough media to get out there. People have a variety of opinions to sift through. This is tending just the opposite. And where are the liberals that espouse so much so much value for the first ten amendments? Where are they? They become on board with a particular party administration and doctrine, and that could lead to the death of journalism and eventually the death of democracy. Doesn't this all go back to something a little bit larger, which is unbridled capitalism? We used to have something called antitrust laws, yeah. which don't seem to be effective at all. So we have fewer and fewer independent journalists, newspapers, TV stations, etc. They're owned by fewer and fewer people, and so we very slanted news is what it amounts to. So unless we start to enforce uh, our antitrust laws, I really don't see much of a future is what it amounts to. We're going to end up in the hands of uh, three, four, five different corporations, and that's it. I was just thinking back on uh, what Craig was saying, that uh, the Hunter Biden situation, that that was inexplicable. I think to me, it seemed explicable in the sense that the kid is sort of a loser and he saw an opportunity to make 50 grand a month on his old man's reputation, uh, that seems self-evident, but the FBI and others seem to think that his behavior wasn't linked to anything that his dad was doing in terms of policy. Yeah, but who believes that? And the I mean, who, believes that who believes that he would have got that without <laughs> his dad either not knowing anything about it or not having talked to anyone about it? It's just okay. like, it's, it's, like um, it's, it's like gangster behavior. Now, again, let's explore it. You know, maybe it's maybe it's totally baloney. So let's find out. And uh, that question should have at least be asked. You know, the left likes the media now 
because they're on board with, with, with their uh, viewpoint. But that could easily switch when you have control of the media. And yeah. you've got corporations, special interests controlling the media. So where does it stand? I mean, eventually even what we're doing may be shut down if, the, if this continues. Given the, uh, you know, the polarization in the country, do you think Biden will be able to govern at all? Or? Well, no. I mean, I think the Democrats are happy in a way that he's not able to govern because they're not capable of coming up with any real answers. I think that the level of crisis we face in this country, independent of these electoral politicians, uh, is so deep and so profound that I'm not sure anyone could govern uh, this country at this time without some radical solutions, and they're not forthcoming. Um, this virus is, is just out of control. I just left my my sister in Illinois, I was deathly afraid to visit her. She's 87, her birthday, uh, you know, 12,000 cases a day in Illinois, and, and, and it's just exploding. Um, the economy, everyone's heralding. I know the journal, Wall Street Journal, the Times are all saying, well, it's actually recovering. Yes, it is, but it's not going to. I mean, come December and January without a vaccine, it's going to have to shut everything down. So, we, we don't have mechanisms and, and, and there's such a distance between what the people in this country want. For example, Fox exit polls show that 70% of the people in this country are for Medicare for all, for a single payer system. Right. And yet no candidate, neither candidate and either party is for that. It will allow it. Biden says it won't allow it. The same with $15 minimum wage, a host of things that came out of a Fox poll, exit poll indicated the progressive character of the American people compared to the politicians. So really the two parties are a lid on any real answers. So I'm, I'm pessimistic about that, but I'm optimistic that many people begin to wake up and see that the, the, the Democratic Party isn't, isn't the answer. I'm sure many of you read Ocasio-Cortez's comments in the New York Times. She was interviewed and she spoke to the uh, disappointment with the Democratic Party and that she tried to help the so-called moderates, they turned her down. Some didn't, the ones that didn't were successful, the ones that did turn her down weren't. And essentially you look at the cross-section of the people in the Democratic Party, down ticket that lost, they lost because of the conservatism. And the party wants to cling to that. Well, when you say the people wake up, I mean, what does that mean? How do they wake up when they do wake up? Well, I, I think the, the, the only time the Democratic Party has been a successful um, party versus an incredible crisis like this one was in the Great Depression. And it woke up because it was a powerful left. There was a left that had its own agenda. It was forcing on people. It was organizing in the, in the, in the uh, industrial um, sector, organizing industrial unions for the first time. They lobbied. They became a power and a force. And it was the left that created all that. The first Social Security Act actually was Earl Browder from the Communist Party that spoke before Congress with the first proposal. And of course, FDR, you know, watered it down, but that's the, that's the social security that we have today. That's, that's the way it was birthed. So, I mean, we need that kind of a force and we don't have a left really in the United States today. Unfortunately, we need to, to create one and we need to, uh, to ask liberals to, I think what Larry's pointing out about the disappointment of liberalism, the kind of treason of liberalism to its own principles uh, is going to wake a lot of people up and we should welcome them into the left fold. They should, they should take a hard look at, at the way politics is structured here and we all come together and find a new solution. The, these liberals in the United States are essentially uh, run right now by the petty bourgeoisie. 
In other words, we don't have a class, a working class conscious uh, political force because the people can't even organize unions. We've got the most repressive uh, laws on union organization and also laws limiting strikes and limiting supportive strikes. So we've got a situation in which you'd have to build up from that. And, you know, it's better, it'll be better under Biden perhaps than it would have been under more Trump type stuff. So I think we have to try to be, well, if not, um, you know, rose colored glasses, at least we have to hope for a situation where there's more of an opportunity for a, demo a democratic, um, you know, uh, organizations, grassroots organizations to form. Otherwise there would be no left organizations and no working organizations, working class. And there's pressure on Biden to, we'll see if the AFL CIO and other groups will put any kind of effective pressure on them. I mean, well, I'll I be- wish, I wish the history of that were better because in, yeah. during the Obama administration and during other, the Clinton administration, in fact, the liberals kind of went to sleep. Uh, I remember well, during the Bush administration, the anti-war movement, mm -hmm. and it was massive. There were millions in the street because it was Bush and liberals rallied around it because they had, they didn't want it. They, they didn't want war, but they also wanted Bush out. Once Obama was elected, that movement disappeared because it said, oh, we entrust it to, to the Democrats. And mm -hmm. that's what they're going to do again is entrust it to the Democrats. So some of these movements that emerged under Trump, the resistance and others were good. They were a good beginning. But my fear is they're going to disappear and they're going to hand their their issues over to the Democratic Party. And that's where issues go to die. Larry, what do you think? I think uh, Greg made an, another good point. Uh, you know, in the old days, and by the way, whether you guys believe me or not, I've been a lifelong liberal Democrat. But we don't believe you. We don't believe you. No, 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 <laughs> no way, Jose. You know, the, the Democratic Party that I grew up with and the, that my parents knew is no longer the Democratic Party of today. What happened was, it's really one party now with two heads. They're all they're all linked to special interests. They, they're all they're all indebted to them. Uh, so you don't. And you know, Clinton's a good example. Uh, Clinton supposedly, and I, I believe it's accurate, uh, he's the one who first decided that to get parity of donations with the Republicans, they had to embrace the big corporation. He was told by dissenters within his party that, yeah, but if we do that, where's the working class is going to abandon us. And his response was, no, because they have nowhere else to go. And that held true until Trump. It was brewing for a long time, and I've told Kent this a number of times in our exchanges, that nobody I know of in this area, although you know I live north of France and it is a conservative area, but it's also a highly democratic area. Nobody I know who was either a Republican or a crossover Democrat for Trump was influenced by what was on the internet, this Russian collusion. They all talked about the jobs being outsourced to China, the unions get, get, getting shafted, uh, the working class being shifted, being shunted aside. And that's where that anger, that simmering anger that erupted into a vote for Trump in 2016, that's where it originated from. But do, do, do you feel that Trump really came through for these uh, Oh, no. 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 Not, 
No, 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 John. I know how, how you feel. I'm asking Larry. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no. I don't think I don't think he he came uh, he came through. But w the lines that he was promoting gave them hope and, and created an allegiance to Trump. Now, I, I must say that even though a lot of it didn't really bear fruit, and a lot of it may have just been self promotion, uh, at least it was renewing the debate about the working class being disenfranchised. At least uh, it started the, the, the conversation going again about how there is this creeping influence that's now uh, predominant of, of special interests, and both parties are attached to it. That's the problem now. You know, Roosevelt, uh, as Greg was talking about FDR, Roosevelt was credited with saving capitalism by going to the left because there was even talk of a revolution and a coup back in those days, and Roosevelt was a safety valve, and he was considered a traitor to his class since he was upper crust upstate New York. And uh, he, he saw what was uh, impinging upon the union, because as Greg knows, you know, the union activism there was very strong, socialism and all that. And Roosevelt was able to uh, release the pressure on that by going to these social programs, which I know now are being condemned by Republicans, which I don't agree with. You know, I mean, where would we be without Social Security? Don't forget, Bush wanted to privatize Social Security. My answer to that was, okay, if you can guarantee me as much of, of a return each month as I get with Social Security, then we could privatize it. And of course, the conversation stopped there because it was just a move to shift all this money that went into Social Security to the Wall Street biggies. I see it as a political class, and they all share the corruption. They all share the commitment to, as Larry put it, special interest to corporate America, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. share a fundamental basis of commitments, both Republican and Democrat. But I think it was uh, Gore Vidal who, who noted the difference. I mean, the mm -hmm. Republicans tend to be cruder and more open about their, their lack of interest in, in minorities and workers and so on, but the Democrats pretend to be interested in them. And I think it really comes down to that. So right. yeah, I mean, the, the the uh, support for Trump among Republicans, uh, the, the class, in the beginning, they were all against him. But mm -hmm. in the end, they showed how callow they are by supporting him in the end because he won. So <laughs> what, what, what happens in 2024? And the reason I ask that mm. is 72 million people voted for Trump. Right. Uh, 77 million have voted for Biden at this point in time. Four years from now, if indeed the, well, I'll call the forgotten class hasn't had their problem solved, do we simply go back again to a Republican Party domination? Uh, there will be a different- A very close election. Trump will be in jail in four years. The electorate's gonna be a lot different too. The number of uh, Latino voters is going to increase and, um, you know- a third, a, a third of them went for Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take 66, 66, 33 among various uh, groups in the country. I think that's that's a good uh, base. Well, you know, there's speculation that Trump is going to uh, be running again. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, in four years time, even though he's vigorous now for his age, will that continue? And is he going to really uh, dedicate uh, the next four years of his uh, remaining good years to uh, an intense uh, preparation to take back the presidency or is he gonna drift off into uh, his business interests again? Or maybe what he'll do is at least nominally head 
his own party and see what they could do uh, to get a third party movement going or mm. to get the Republicans back. Uh, you know, he, there's talk that he may even start his own TV network similar to Fox. We've already got that going. It would be a constant uh, stream of, of his views and all that. Uh, so I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm not convinced that he's going to make another run uh, in four years. Getting back to the AOC thing, there was an interesting uh, election in Florida where we've got a winter place. Uh, a woman uh, running for re-election uh, in a heavily Republican district that she won for the first time two years ago. And she ran again this time on basically a Green New Deal platform. She didn't call it a Green New Deal, which I think is smart. She didn't call it socialist either and uh, mm -hmm. a lot of other labels, but almost everything she ran on were elements of the Green New Deal. And she won, She she and she says it was because she started serious canvassing 18 months ago, going door to door, asking people what their problems were, and then saying, well, you know, if you've got this problem, here's how this uh, component of the Green New Deal would, would uh, solve that problem. Right. And, uh, and she won. So you have to wonder uh, if we could somehow do a better job right. of getting the word out, uh, we might prevail. And if, I think there's a list of about 20 uh, reps who ran on a Green New Deal platform, uh, only one of whom lost. Mm. It suggests that there is a, a, a receptive audience out there for a progressive platform if somehow we can mobilize to get that word out in less, in less scary verbiage than, uh, exactly. uh, than some exactly. people are doing. Well, exactly. I, 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 will. Know, I don't agree about the verbiage, but I certainly agree with Mason's point. In fact, of all the endorsers of Medicare for All, every one of them won re-election. Of the endorsers of uh, uh, the Green New Deal, all but one won for re-election. Marcy, what do you, why don't you settle on this? And what, give us some words of wisdom. Um, definitely to stop using any of the, the words that all of us have been using to pillory some other side start using fresh language and talking about real problems and alternative solutions to those problems and have real discussions on that, such as Congress used to have in the 1970s. Um, and, and use the words that resonate with huge numbers of people like fairness, trust. We, we need a government we can trust. We need to get money out of politics. These may not be perfect phrases, but the, the notions that there should be real democracy for all and much more equality throughout the country um, and no big boys controlling everything, an, an, an equal voice for all of us, freedom of speech for all of us. Um, but then talk about real problems and do things that encourage real discussion rather than throwing out slogans. Yeah. Mm. She's against the electoral college, as am I. Electoral College. Do we have time to discuss that? Yeah. All right. I am adamantly against dismantling the Electoral College. The Electoral wow. College serves as a way to spread out representation. You know, different states have different interests, different views. 
right. if you eliminate the electoral college, New York, Texas, California, and one or two other states will decide all national elections. I don't think that's fair. No, one person, one vote. All right. Diversion and inclusiveness are big watchwords these days. <coughs> the Electoral College assures more diversity and inclusion in the political process. Otherwise, you have you ignore the differing interests of various areas of the country. It's just the, the east and west coast largely that's going to decide elections. What happens to the flyover country and the people that populate those? Now, you can, you know, I know the Republicans have used this as a talking point somewhat speciously, but I think it does have merit. You eliminate the Electoral College and all the other states uh, in the middle of the country largely have no, have no representation because their views are different, their interests are different, their concerns are different. Just like with gun control. You know, you may want to eliminate guns in New York City, but even where I live in Pennsylvania, which is a rural area, uh, you need guns for protection because police can't respond within even a half hour. There's animals around that sometimes you, you may be confronted by. And as I've told Kent before, Nobody's gun crazy here because they grow up with guns. Um, a lot of them hunts, although I'm not a hunter. But I mean, no, no, nobody is, is uh, shooting their neighbors at a whim. New York City is a different uh, situation. So that's what I'm saying. There are different cultural concerns and environmental concerns and social concerns in different parts of the country. And that's where the Electoral College comes in. This is a wonderful academic discussion. We are a republic, we're not a democracy, and our chances of eliminating the Electoral College are zilch. You need a constitutional amendment, and therefore you need those flyover states to vote for that. They're never going to vote for that. So we are stuck with the Electoral College, folks. Hey, so listen, we've been talking about an hour and 20 minutes now, and uh, I want to thank everybody for coming on. Yeah, but before we leave, can I ask Mason just one question? Yeah. What the hell happened in Maine with the Senate election? <laughs> I wish the hell I knew. Uh, Sarah Gideon, who lost, uh, lives about three houses down from me. I put every dollar I could legally put into her campaign and was knocking on doors and putting up signs and stuff like that. She looked great until about three days before the election and hmm. then just crashed and burned. And what I think happened? Uh, what was the percentage? About uh, six points. Jeez. Oh, six or eight, maybe. Why did she crash and burn? I think because she was advised by the National Democratic Party, which was providing most of the money for her campaign. And both she and Collins had $100 million on, on either side. Just amazing for this tiny little state. And I think they told her and she agreed that your best chance of winning since you're a relatively unknown person uh, as the uh, uh, head of the legislature is to define your campaign as a referendum on Trump. And so tie Collins to Trump and you'll win. And I think that was partially true, but then she never came out with specific platform positions on her, on, of her own. Mm. Uh, so that was part of it. And I think Susan Collins has been in office for what, 24 years? She's done a lot of favors to a lot of people and she yeah. could call on those. The question I have is if we took the money that was spent on this election, <laughs> how big a minimum wage could we arrange <laughs> yeah. for every worker in the country? 
Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right, everybody. Thank you. We'll talk again All next right. week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. That's it for episode 14 of the Last Negroes at Harvard podcast. I'm Kent Garrett, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.